0: Welcome to the Fun to Know podcast with Dan Buskirk. On today's show, musician, songwriter, and rock star Ken Queter.
1: There was interest. You know, Clive Davis came in town with a fleet of people, star maker, you know. We didn't really hit it off because he wanted me to, um, you know, to uh, make it simpler. And, and if you get, you know, because so he was trying to get me to go, go towards Barry. He kept bringing up Barry Manilow, like, who I wanted to I wanted to kill. I wanted to kill. Like if Barry Manilow came on the radio when I was driving in my car, My, in, I would injure my hand hitting the radio. I was like, because it was like, that's what I don't want to become. You know? But he's like going, yeah, if you would follow the Barry Manilow, you know? i like, <laughs> gosh. So it didn't really work out. Like I just put it that way.
0: Greetings, and welcome back to the Fun to Know podcast. On today's show, our guest is the electric Mr. Ken Queter, and the first of two shows that attempt to get to the epic heart of the Philadelphia rock icon. To keep up with new shows, you can like us on Facebook at Fun To Know Podcast with Dan Buskirk. You can email us there at Fun To Know, that's always the numeral two. That's Fun To Know Podcast at gmail.com. Or stream and download new and old episodes at Fun To Know Podcast at SoundCloud. And it looks like this is the week we'll finally be added at iTunes. Now on to Ken Queter. What can be said? Although his music and fame has rarely escaped beyond the Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware tri-state area, within that 50-mile radius, Ken Queter is a rock star. First climbing to local Philly fame in the late 70s with his band The Secret Kids, a great batch of songs and the charisma of their frontman led Queter and the band to be branded the next big thing from out of Philly. Whether it was a record company recession or Queeter's reputation for drunken recklessness that foiled this big break is uncertain, but Queeter's commitment to music has never waned. Continuing to play constantly and put out a series of releases that further illuminated his Dylanesque way with the lyric, his sly humor, and his straightforward knack for melody and pop hooks. Decades after he first arrived on the scene, there's always some place that demands a Ken Queeter performance, as his Herculean schedule finds him playing out for crowds with a near 300 gigs a year schedule. Still lean and intense and still blessed with his expressive tenor voice, Queter continues to ooze with that sort of rock star energy that brings to life any room in which he graces. I talked to Ken last week for a wonderful conversation that stretched out over a couple of hours. We're going to hear most of that chat spanning over two episodes, both featuring selections from the gorgeous catalog of recordings pulled from his two volume, three disc release, Queterology. In this first half, we talk about Queter's working-class roots in Philly, finding himself as a musician, and his rise to fame and glory. In next week's episode, we'll hear of his crash and rebirth, as well as getting his philosophical take on the world, sharing a wisdom he's collected from his nonstop work as a troubadour. In the interview's opening, we talk of a 13-year-old musician from Fondeneau's second episode, Henry Plotnik, whose first recording is entitled Fields. Let's hear Ken's classic tune, "Heroine." And then we'll join the conversation.
2: I got mixed up, mixed up, mixed up with all the other babies, all the other babies, all the other babies in the same hospital. I was alone.
1: Good to see you man I, I yeah, like I was like easy. last time I hung out here was about three or years ago we had vodka or something
0: here yeah yeah they're trying to, I had to go
1: see. drive somewhere and pick somebody I forget what happened you know I think I hit a couple bars in the way home I was in the, the bar thing a couple of years ago I was like really like like you do the, if I do the, the really late nights you know uh-huh. then I'll get up early in the morning because like because uh, sometimes so whatever you just get up and then like like if you have to travel in the morning like say you fall asleep somewhere right and then like on the way home that you'll stop at like um, like real dives. Like, you know, you get up like, say you get up at seven and on the way home, you, you you do know, I do know which bars are open at seven at this point <laughs> on the way back to my house. It's like a place called Pop Pops, you know.
0: Uh-huh. Uh, Where's Pop Pops?
1: Pop Pops is on Ridge Avenue, Ridge and Parker, right? Mm-hmm. And there it's like Pop Pops, he, they, 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 the, the bartender actually has a stove. He's back there. He can cook for you while he's oh, yeah. taking drinks, which is cool. And then there's um, a place uh, called... Pecks, that's on Ridge Avenue too. Uh So I'd stop in and see these characters in these places. You know, I would go in and and it's pretty inexpensive, and like there's some really hardcore guys in there. Like on your way to the mens and whatever, you're like, you're not sure if there's going anything's going to (laughs) happen on your way back out. You know, so it's kind of like you know, but it's pretty cool. Everybody's pretty cool. You know, it's pretty cool. Yeah, you know. So, but but yeah, that's one of the things that happens in my life because of the late nights. You know, the next morning you kind of want to put the fever out. You know, so you hit, yeah. hit a couple joints. You know?
0: So, so what is there anything in particular you, that you want to talk about?
1: But yeah, what kind of, Did you? You must have a bunch of questions. I I, well, I mean, I
0: feel like I, you know, uh, it's easy to have questions for Ken Queer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's a very questionable man. <laughs> <laughs>
1: what. Well, th- I'm excited. There's a, there's a movie coming out, but I mean I don't know what's. Oh good. yeah, well, well let's movie. let's get to, let's yeah. definitely get to talk to that.
0: Yeah. Uh, should we give you like a basic uh, biographical? Well, do uh, what you got to do, and then yeah. I'll follow
1: you. Yeah, and I guess you can edit this and all that. stuff. Oh yeah. Oh by the yeah. way, I was checking out the you were interviewing the kid the, uh, the keyboard player. Oh yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Uh, out in uh, on the he's San in the Francisco, yeah. Yeah, really interesting. Before you asked him the question about fields, I was like wow remember you said what do you mean what do you mean what's a great like his perception was really great because it's like when you put together a band like the bass players i never even thought that's like that that that, 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 that that's such a great word because you can say in your field of bass playing like you you take care of that and then the yeah, keyboard yeah. player does the field of this like that was a, that was a great because i was ready I was ready to say, i want to start using that word next time I rehearse with somebody, and you go, what do you mean you know you asked him about field? you don't,
0: do yeah, you remember that yeah. question, yeah, and he was saying that you know that his music is sort of like a field that's that's laid out in front of you, and you can you know find your place in the field and what part of the field you want to pay attention to right, yeah. yeah, so yeah. so
1: but it was really you have to think of it in those metaphors, you know yeah I', I, he's I a bright kid, different yeah well, yeah, he was like <laughs> using some terminology I was going, oh, wow uh, you know uh, what was the uh he, actually, he used the word I introduced to my, he introduced something to his parents like, at 12, like, you yeah. know, yeah. I was like, wow, it's a pretty strong verb, <laughs> you know, uh, pretty good. Yeah, smart kid.
0: Um, well, I guess I'd, uh, I'd like to start uh, with a, a basic introduction. Where where, uh, okay, yeah, where okay. are the beginnings of Ken Queeter
1: Okay, yeah, I, I was born out there near Southwest Philadelphia, you know, Darby, PA, you know, mm-hmm. and then uh, grew up in Southwest Philadelphia. Down in uh, in the parish called uh, Good Shepherd Parish.
0: Yeah. What were your parents like? Uh,
1: my father had his own business. You know, uh, he had a scrap metal business, which at this point they would that word the, the concept of scrap metal still exists, but but they use a different word for that, which would be recycling. He mm-hmm. would go into buildings and take out metal, iron, or, you know, and then uh, you know do certain things, with it, maybe chop it up or whatever, and then like sell it. To uh, a re- like what we refer to as a recycling center now, but back in those days, would be a scrap metal yard. Yeah, so, so I would,
0: self-employed, r- real physical work. It sounds oh right.
1: God, yeah, it was. I like, one guy like I, I, it, the stories. I mean, you, I worked from briefly, you know. And like you know, the, you know, we would go into like print shops, and uh, print shops use zinc to do the printing on paper and stuff, you know. So, but the zinc was on wood. The trick was to get the zinc off, like. It's almost like if you imagine a stove uh, in, in a restaurant, it's just a flat stove and it would just be so hot you'd put the plates on and then there would melt there'd be some kind of glue keeping them to the wood. And then like and then as soon as you saw the, the glue bubbling, you would take like pliers and pull the, the fucking pull the, uh, the zinc off because the money was in the zinc. Never even thinking the entire time, hours and days and weeks of doing this, there was like these gases being released by this glue that's holding the zinc onto the blocks, and I, there was no EPA at that point. You know? So, uh, so I mean, I'm just saying this is what I was. Do- that was one of the jobs. It was a lot of jobs, but that was one of the crazy jobs I did, you know. And then, then you know, once you re- you do that, then you, know, you make more money doing. It. You know, of course, I don't know what we do with the wood. I can't. I think we burn the wood for heat or something. I can't remember.
0: Was your dad easy to work with?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it was there was only one direction. It was like, do this. Wasn't you know, like there was like, okay, that's it. You know, so it was like I just did my job. What kind of guy was he? Pretty serious, you know, <laughs> like really serious. I think my entire life has been like uh, the working to be unserious, but being serious at the same time. I'm like seriously unserious, uh, and uh, but he, he was really like straight ahead about work, really like serious work and. Uh, you know like it was all one direction was anything there was no conversation about you know what was going to happen or because he was that was his gig you know so it was like i i didn't even know what i was doing i had no idea i was too busy you know thinking of other things while i was doing what i had to do for him but but i couldn't chime in i couldn't introduce anything to him
0: about this job
1: you know but he was a Tell me what I had to do. So I did that, you know, for a while. But and then
0: uh, is he a Lithuanian? Uh, he was,
1: a Lithuanian uh, background. He, he was 100% Lithuanian, he, but he was born in America. But both parents were Lithuanian, and my mother was uh, Irish, 100% Irish.
0: What was your mother like? Uh
1: extremely lively, you know, and uh, very much into music, and uh, uh, very dramatic about what it is that she loved or hated. So it was really like it was. There was it was never a dull moment in the house. It was you know she was either wildly crazy about some music or wildly crazy about something or she didn't like something so there was like you know there was just total opinions going on all the time which was which was cool because it kind of opened me up to like you know you look at you know she looked at the world her own way without uh you know thinking about what anybody might think that what she had said there was like no editing like on the computer you hit the edit button no, no edit <laughs> buttons back in those days so it was like it was kind of cool it was kind of like you know look back upon it it's kind of refreshing so the, you know, between the two of them was like uh, you had like the Apollonian and the Dionysian as parent, like you know, like you know, I don't know if it's totally Dionysian, but one's <laughs> like totally in control, one's was just really just totally emotional and dramatic and you know great, just pretty inspiring. She was really into poetry and uh, you know, into words and things like that. So that do was... you have
0: any early? What, do you have any earliest musical memories uh, as a kid growing up there?
1: Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, every Friday night they went out to dinner, and um. You know by nine o'clock or i mean i would if i was like six years old or seven you know I would, you know like you know i'd be sleeping and then all of a sudden i could hear them coming in and then all of a sudden the uh, the stereo system uh would be blasting and around 9 30 at night and it was always either Frank Sinatra flying me to the moon, or it was Judy Garland like live at uh, Carnegie Hall. Or I don't know what the, it was a live performance, but it was the same two or three or four records that were being played uh, without any type of uh, the, uh, you know concern that the kids upstairs were sound asleep. And but everybody was downstairs singing, you know. And then uh, then a fight would break because you know, there'd be other relatives would come over, and then an argument would start. And the music would turn off and then about a half hour later the music was back on and everybody was arm around each other <laughs> singing the songs there they, they had just turned off so it was you know it was, like I guess it was a pretty lively household it was like definitely no and it was definitely a lot of people kind of like celebrating I, I, it was just a on the Friday nights everybody worked but Friday nights was the night to, to to really just let it go you know a lot of Sinatra and Judy Garland so you know it's like that really happened. I mean, that was you know, yeah. I, I, I don't know if I thought everybody else lived like that, but it's sure it sure was. It was a pain in the neck for me because I was trying to get to sleep, and I was not really into Sinatra <laughs> or Judy Garland. You know, I was like, this shit really sucks, and I gotta fucking listen to
0: it. You know,
1: but they were having a good time, and then you know, uh, was the,
0: was the guitar your first in- instrument?
1: Oh yeah, we, yeah. But, you know, at that point I was like five, six, seven, eight. You know, I think when I was like nine, I decided never to listen to music ever. You know, and I think around um, from nine to twelve, uh, I wasn't listening. To, I wouldn't listen to music because I thought it was kind of like uh, it, it was a waste of time. Uh, I, I wouldn't look at cartoons. I thought it was like a wa- really waste of time. Uh, what,
0: what had your attention?
1: Like science, things like science. You know, and I just thought of things that had to be really pragmatic and practical, sort of like along my father's like lit, hardcore uh, Lithuanian thing. You know, so. Uh, but around 12, 1964, that's when I saw The Beatles on Ed Solomon, And all of a sudden, like, you know, I was a really shy kid, too. And I kind of, you know, I started kind of, like, taking a peek at the, you know, the girls. Like, wow, I kind of, like, but I, was, I couldn't really converse with them because I had, like, vocabulary of, like, five words, you know. And, but the music thing, when I saw, like, these guys, you know, getting people excited and girls and everything, I was like, Wow, that, maybe I was wrong. Maybe music is a good thing. You know, it, it seems to have, like, some kind of effect on people and making them happy. So um, so then I, I started to listen to music then. Right? I was, like, again at 12. And it was, like, the Beatles and then I was 13, the Stones and that. I, I was just a listener, you know. Mm-hmm. But at the same yeah. time, I had entered high school and still being very shy and not being able to play an instrument. You know, I didn't, I didn't, even, didn't even think about playing an instrument. I decided, you know, I had met a, a a guy in high school who really was the very first cat who broke me out of my shell. I didn't really talk to anybody, hardly at all, ever. I was really, 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 like, deathly shy.
0: Sounds like a very different queeter.
1: Yeah, he was just for real. He liked for real. So <laughs> it's like, because I think I went in school, high school around 65, 1965, so I was like 13 or 13 and a half or something. I don't know what it was. Um, Joe O'Leary was like, he was like, wow. He was like, this guy was like, um, he was always talking, talking to me about all kinds of funny things, and you know. And he, I actually, he was like the first guy I knew who cursed. I mean, back in those days, no one realized it was pretty puritanical. You didn't really curse too much. If Somebody cursed, I already knew it was that one guy in his neighborhood that cursed. Did, of you, course, go
0: to, did you go? Did you to church a lot? Or
1: he was really he did he went to church. Did I, you? Or? Oh yeah, it was extremely religious, like ridiculous. Like you have no idea, like ridiculous, very very religious. You yeah, know
0: which which church was this?
1: Uh, it was Good Shepherd, Catholic Church. Catholic you know? Church. Yeah. yeah. Like really, I was really religious. And then with Joe Leary, was like, hey, man, do you want to play some basketball? And I was like, I don't know, man. I don't know if I could really play with other people. Like I was really like, really like to myself. And I started like, he, this guy was so cool. Joe was like kind of like, he's like kind of rescued me from being like a fucking, uh, I don't know, what you would call it, isolated person. And I started to play basketball with this guy, you know? And then, um, then we started to go to basketball games, me and him and some other guys and we'd go see Will Chamberlain play and all these guys. Joe had it. His father was great. He would pick us up and drive us. And for, you know, a couple of years throughout high school, by the fact of him, like, getting me to play basketball and teach me that game, I became, like, a super basketball player. I mean, I played... I would wear sneakers out in, like, literally within 20 days. Like, no kidding. And I would play every day for five hours a day, you know, stuff like that. Uh, and I became, like, convinced by 15 I was going to be in the NBA. I mean, like, because I was just getting better and better but around 16 i i started playing with you know inner city you know kids from over the city like they were teenagers and we were we were meeting up at big brothers which is a 20th and van pelt around here Mm -hmm. it was there i guess i don't know if it's still there but me and joe leary and a bunch of guys would get in there and play and you know i was pretty good but when you start playing against other guys in philadelphia there were some seriously like talented and gifted people that you know, we played, you know, and all of a sudden my role was reduced. Like I was I you know, I was like we were I put together an unbelievable team and we won like the championship, Big Brothers championship. But I was I ended up being like player coach, you know. (laughs) And uh so I think by the time I was like sixteen and a half I realized that my dream was over because i played, there was a couple guys, it was a guy named Andre McCarter mm-hmm. who ended up in the NBA and there was other guys who ended up being, you know, going to Duke and like these, I can't remember the names now, but they became like, there was There like, was a reason I got the the newsflash, Queter, you're not making it to the NBA, you know? So, uh, because these guys were just like, I used to just, they were like, designed by the universe to, to go to the NBA and somehow my hips missed the fucking, like the bone structure or whatever. So, uh, cause there's like a bone structure in hips, I'm telling you, man, yeah, of yeah. like basketball players. There's like, they're like moving machines.
0: i so, heard somebody discuss also the peripheral vision that the the shape of your skull makes a difference that could, you can see like wide peripheral vision, the great basketball players.
1: Yeah, it could be, but there's, that's true. But there's, there's a hip thing. that's like, you, you just make these like superhuman moves. And i was too damn human to make it to the nba so <laughs> so anyway so that right when that shit happens when the news flash happens and i realize i'm not going to make it and i'm not going to probably make it to the nba i um i started you know i stumbled onto this program on public broadcasting folk guitar how to play folk guitar a woman named laura weber uh-huh. she would come on i think it, it came from uh, chicago she, i had no you know i, really, I certainly had no money but um, the program was on all the time. I didn't even have a guitar, so what I did is I, st- I started to write down. I started taking notes, like I was just really like a primitive, writing down what she was doing, and then like then I sent in like two dollars to get the book. <clears throat> this is all without a guitar, right? So that but I was like so, I took my basketball intentions and totally converted them into this music thing, because I figured I got to continue to stay like like to break this this thing of being shy because I wanted to after Joe O'Leary kind of cracked me open I was like I kind of like the fact being around people and talking to people and all this and um, of course I want to you know, meet up with maybe some girls you know so I'm at 16 and a half years old so um, the and I'm totally sober completely sober uh, and then the thing is then I um, I, I saved up uh, what they call S N H Green Stamp books you know if you kept buying groceries you'd, you could put these you'd send this book in with these stamps they were like coupons I finally got a guitar like a SNH Green Stamp acoustic guitar and i practiced that fucking thing day in and day out you know with the whole the the, you know the 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 cliche your fingers bleed and all i mean i literally did it and like then all of a sudden after a couple months that and getting i mean i was like this was life or death i'm going to be a big star i'm thinking right i'm like so next thing you know i'm i'm haunting all the basketball courts i used to play ball at i'm going there with my guitar instead of the basketball and i'm like I'm here, guys. Like, you know, like, I'm not playing. Like, I could play, but I like, you know, I started to like I, was, like, I started like the the pre, pre, pre program of Ken of promoting himself. I've, I had to start somewhere. So I was like, I would climb up on the basketball uh, the back, you know, where the where the basket's at with the yeah, backboard. Yeah. And I would stand on the rim, like the back of the rim, the thick part, and I'd have them throw up the guitar and I would be playing up on the, the rim. They, to the guy, you know, I'd play whatever the song of the day was, you know. Um, I wasn't that good, but like, the thing is the word started spreading in the neighborhood. Fucking, this cleaner guy, he's like, sounds pretty good. And he's like playing, you know, I'm you know, climbing fences on Friday nights where everybody who's like, late teenagers are drinking I still wasn't drinking I wasn't I was pretty I was really sober I was anti getting high anti booze I was like really into Frank Zappa at that time Bob Dylan Captain Beefheart none of these guys were promoting certainly Zappa was anti getting high so I was like a real devout zealot I guess if that's the word of being sober and learning as much as I could musically so like on Friday nights when I knew everybody was gathering down by the railroad tracks mm-hmm. you know which was near my house you know, they would climb up and they'd have all their beers and the railroad tracks, like 30 people. I used to bring the guitar down and play there, you know. But it was like this whole thing, like, we, like climbing up the fence, and then the guitar gets thrown. Then, of course, the police play a little cat and mouse with us. So, like, they, they're like, they see us all down. I'm not drinking, right? But everybody else is drinking and smoking pot or whatever. So, then, like, the police are going, they, like, the lights start flashing, and like and then, like, they're coming down after us, right? So, I'm like, fuck, I gotta get out of here, too. It's like, I'm running, you know, like, I'm climbing the fence, and it's like, you know, and they can't climb up with the guitar. So, it's like, I'm jumping, <laughs> throwing, the guitar's getting thrown over the fence you know, and they were all running away, you know, because the fence really blocked us from the cops, you know. But, but that shit went on for quite a while. migrated down to um, every Saturday early morning I was down at the Rittenhouse Square, the, 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 the park, Rittenhouse yeah. Square Park. I got down around 1969, 1970, and uh, I think I, by that time I was in college, I think I was in college, yeah. But it was a really big deal to me because you have to understand the whole world, you know, like uh, there was there was a sense that things were gonna change in the world because, you know, while I'm doing whatever I'm doing, this whole other scenario is going on, like in parallel time, Thing. you know there's like there's a whole lot of change fermenting in, in 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 the in the United States it seems like there's like protests going on and um, now
0: know. Square Park in the center of Philadelphia was really a, a counterculture center oh yeah of this oh Institute. yeah because like
1: you would hear about it on the radio like because at that point there was like a, a, the um, WMMR had like they had launched something called Nick like, the Marconi experiment, but they were talking about like improving the world, and a lot. Of this we're going to meet down at Rittenhouse Square. So I was like, "Or this is going to happen at Rittenhouse Square," or then you'd. Hear, the second fret was right around the corner where. Bob Dylan had played. I'd seen Dave Van Rock play there and uh, Linda Cohen play. Dave Van Rock was the very first concert I ever saw, and I'll never okay. forget it. And then the, the Ethical Society was there. I had heard Gene Shea had said Bob Dylan once played there, and I'm like, wow, this I have to be there. I have to be at the center of the universe here in Philadelphia. So I'd go down there every Saturday morning, um, you know, with a bag of potato chips and a soda, and play in the park. And I was by that time I was really getting good. What kind and, of
0: songs were you playing? Back oh, I was
1: doing like. Uh, Certainly Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell and um, uh, like Tom Rush and Phil Oakes. Uh, You know, the the real, you know, the focus on maybe Pete Seeger at that time. You know, I wasn't, I had not yet really written anything. I was trying, but I couldn't. Uh, But I was doing these, I was doing Arlo Guthrie a lot because the Woodstock had just happened, you know. So, but I was, this was a life and death situation. I took, like I said, that basketball fervor. To become like I thought, like world famous, and it didn't take how long. It didn't matter how long it was going to take, but I was going to establish myself somewhere. And I was down there all the time. I used to get really. There was other guys down there too, and they were good. And I, but I, I was just like really like it was like I was like the ISIS of the folk movement. Like I'm <laughs> fucking killing everybody. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> and then of course to bring up another name that marty watt talked about you know who else was hanging down i was a ringleader ira einhorn was down there oh, yeah. so i would see him you know because he'd heard about this guy you know this guy iron, iron, iron you know but i'm just saying like even though he turned out not to be the guy that everybody thought he was so he like, turned
0: out to be the what they call the unicorn killer yeah yeah yeah, yeah. he turned yeah. out to
1: be the anti he became become the anti Ironhorn that he led everybody to believe who he was you know so Anyway, but I'm just saying, but there was all these countercultural cats showing up down there, and, and I was playing. But the thing is, I would draw pretty large crowds to the point. And then the police started breaking those up, you know. And I think I did it for nine months, almost a year, you know. But I, I like the very first girl that I ever had any like the very first it seri- wasn't serious but I'm saying like the first girl that I, I, I had a girlfriend came out of the out of the Rittenhouse Square thing like like finally after the basketball thing proved the dud with the <laughs> romance department but the guitar actually helped me uh, you know cure that loneliness well, I what was
0: the time. first girl like
1: she was like she she very much like Janice Joplin at the time she she was the Philadelphia version of Janis Joplin. Uh-huh. Uh, not so much drinking, but just she, her whole demeanor, her dress, and her name was Sandy. You know, she was really, really smart, and um, it didn't work out. But the, but the thing is, was like, it's a shame. I mean, you know, whatever. I am just saying, like, it was like a big deal to me. You know, so sure. You know, but she was like, it was really weird. Whatever happened, I mean, but it, it, she actually like. I remember she like. I, like you have to understand, like I remember she turned me on to. Uh, I think shampoo or something. like, like, I never washed my hair or maybe she turned me on the conditioner. I can't remember, but there was a whole lot of like, I was really like, really like not knowing what was going on, you know, mm-hmm. with the world. I mean, you have to understand, like, I didn't know, like there's some basic things. I, I didn't really know how to go to a restaurant, you know, things like that. I didn't Well,
0: Kensington is a real working class. Well, Southwest Philly, yeah. Southwest Philly, yeah. a real working class. I could see where you might not be, uh, you know, graceful in the manners of, of, of Center City even. you know? Yeah, yeah, because it was,
1: yeah, it was a whole, it was a different world and um, everybody was, you know, I got along pretty well with everybody, but it was just amazing. I thought I knew everything. I thought, oh, well, I know. But then there's like, like there are things that, you know, when you go to a re- like a nice restaurant, there's like a whole like pantomime going on with where forks are placed and all this shit. I remember going out with different, different girls when I was younger, like um, they were, pretty well to do and then of course you have to meet the parents and just for fun because they knew i probably wasn't hip to the pantomime thing and they would really be able to push their daughter away from get let's bring them to a really fancy restaurant see we get confused with these little spoons and shit you know and i did get confused you know but um but the girls still stuck around <laughs> but I, I don't even know where i got in there but i'm just saying sandy sandy she got me into like a list but 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 then that ended. but i'm just saying but, but so the 1971 comes around 72 and i'm just like playing coffee houses and doing alcohol anonymous uh, you know churches where meetings are taking place mm-hmm. because I, like like it's always hard it's always been hard and it's it's very it's hard even today because like why did I do um, AA meetings was I no was I going there for no I wasn't going there to to be part of the meeting I was there because there, there was a crowd there, you know. It was for probably the most, like, unchivalrous reasons or whatever. So I was going there because there was a crowd. And, you know, I was doing my songs, you know. so or the, the, the songs, because I didn't really have any songs yet. But then I would do churches or open mics and things like that. I used to go down to the catacombs, which was uh, right there, 3601 Locust Walk, which would eventually become the Eatery, which would eventually become the Palladium ah. in the Gold Standard, down in that basement. That's where I met Marty Watt. Marty Watt, I met him in... Uh, 1970-ish, you know, 71, 72 maybe, Um, because he was down there and I was down there. And there was all these old school, old guard folk, the old folk guard. I don't know if that's a correct phrase, but guys uh, that were uh, like Peter Tawney or Jack McGann, really serious. They were like, they were the, the defenders of the folk movement in Philadelphia down at the catacombs. And the catacombs was really like, to me, was a big deal, even though it was kind of an open mic or whatever. It was a big deal because it was a real stage, and and people came who were familiar with, you know, folk music and the history of folk music. Guys like Jesse Graves were there. You probably don't know these guys, but these Jesse guys. Jesse Graves, were, I remember yeah, those blues yeah, blues, blues guy, band. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, and there was all these other guys, and they they were all good, but when I went on, by the time I went on, by the time by the time I turned 20. I was was really into the, uh, Captain Beefheart and David Bowie and, you know, all these guys, you know. And so I, st- for whatever reason, I started to, this is what I think where my, I think this is where my mother sort of like drifted into me. I got, started doing pretty dramatic uh, performances. They were no longer the Pete Seeger version or the Arthur or Guthrie or something. It was like, more like David Bowie had like, and my mother had entered my psyche. So I started doing pretty dramatic versions of, you know, um, you know, like whatever songs, like, uh, I don't know, Little Boxes. or something. I don't know what yeah. the fuck I was singing, but it rock was like... And
0: rock and roll always had an, uh, an air of theatricality about it. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah but, I, but, but, but I wasn't even into the... Like, in other words, I was like, I, I was devoted to... I was going to become a folk singer, right? You know, I dug the rock, but I was like, I'm going to do this thing, like the folk thing. But somehow I started to to add like Bowie and all these other people that were like, or Captain P. Fart. Like, there was a lot of drama in those guys. So, so then all of a sudden I was totally... Axed from ever being allowed back at the catacombs because they were like, even though I could, I was really, really good and I could play that stuff like the old guard did, but I was trying to bring something new. So they, so so all these other places that I was trying to play at, those guys went out of their way to put the stoppers. Like I wasn't, I couldn't get in. There was a couple other like uh, coffee house, whatever, in West Philly that I couldn't get in. So it's like, all of a sudden, it was like this. Like this thing, I'm like on the blacklist of folk music in Philly. So so then, of course, by that time, I start drinking, right? By the time I'm like 20, when I start drinking, getting high. So I'm like going, I got to, you know, I got to, you know, I, 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 I'm still, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm still in college, but like. Where were so you we going to college? I was at Temple University. So by like 72 or 73, you know, I'm still like, I'm like going, I got to get, back. no matter what's going on, I'm like, I got to get back to the catacombs right even though i'm like i'm not allowed here but i'm like i got to get back to the catacombs you know but they're not letting me in and and, then by this time there's like because of my behavior i think i'm drinking i'm like banging on the door, you know doing all these things that are like really not folk music type of behavior like you know and uh then i started making prank calls to the guys in charge you know threatening their lives sending a priest over to, to administer uh like uh extreme unction you know like last <laughs> rites for some of these people and then I little do I know that this is really furthering like alienation between Cleeter and the in the folk me by that time like then I'm trying to get get a gig up at the uh, folk song like, the Philadelphia folk, folk festival okay, yeah. you know? and uh, the, the gang from the catacombs it was called the cherry tree co-op they're like the word is out. This is like before the internet, man. This is like this, is, if you, this might have even been faster than like uh, an instant message. The folk song says, "Odie, they got like it's like that. What was that thing uh, with Robbie the Robots and that Planet Earth? What's it? That, uh,
0: Forbidden Planet.
1: Yeah, with, with the things shut." Like the lead doors and <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, it's yeah. like forbidden planter.
0: The shutters go up. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: The shutters like for Queen are trying to get the folk. I'm trying to get the, the premier like place to do folk music at the Philadelphia Folk Society, right? And it's like everybody except well Gene Shea was cool because he, he he liked me, you know. But whoever the other characters were. They were really, they were like, this guy. And for years I tried to get in and then it got worse and worse. And then for years I started to like taunt them. Like, you know, thinking that's, cause I was really a prankster back in those days. I was like, you motherfuckers are gonna come around and know I'm right, you know? So never, it didn't happen until a couple <laughs> years ago. I slipped in sideways a couple years ago. I played there, but I came in uh, through a band. I came in on stage, you know? But that's sort of like the folk, that's like, that's that's the pre rock queeter, you know? And then by 73, by, by 1973 and a half, I couldn't take it anymore. I, I think by then I was, I had sort of graduated. I hadn't like really totally graduated college, but like I, was, I moved in with this girl in West Philadelphia. You know, I, I kind of gave up like going on. I, I, I surrendered. I like, I can't, I can't get through the Forbidden Planet shutters. And you know, I taunted all these people. And, so But I, so what I did is I just started at that point. Uh, I had already written a couple songs, but, but, but I was with this this girl living in her place at 43rd and Pine, really drinking, finally get out, you know, college, I'm not really in college at this point, get a job for the government, I'm working for the state government. What were you doing for them? I was, uh, in the beginning I was a clerk, and then I became what they would call a caseworker. I was in, you know, I was in charge of people's uh, financial aspects of their lives, you know. Social work. Social work, yeah. So, and I went in there going, I'm going to help people out because I'm like really basically a good hearted guy. I was like, I'm going to go in here and I'm just going to help people out. Well, did a little did I know, like I'm entering this like apparatus that's like based on dysfunction. Like, like there's like people really wanting to help people out, but there's a whole lot of people dragging their feet because the less that gets done, the more secure your work is. It's like, it's a crazy paradox. But I mean, I'm trying to help people out. Meantime, I'm like starting to drink, like really drinking right here, you know, so you know, I'm like, you know, drinking and working, drinking and working. But I'm doing a good job, pretty decent job. But I'm living with this girl. And then like, but but I'm like, I'm not playing music anymore out because i doing the full-time job. But I'm at home and I'm starting to, you know, I'm like having parties like once a month. And I am I got the guitar out and, you know, but, I, but I'm not playing out, you know. So then all of a sudden it just gets diminished. And, all, you know, I had some great parties. But then all of a sudden, like into like 74... By the end, by the middle of 1974, the, uh, in fact, I broke my, I remember I broke my heel. Um, How'd you do that? Oh, I was drinking one afternoon and I didn't follow, I wasn't, I was so much like, remember, I was like kind of like myopic. It was all basketball in the beginning. Then it was all music and hardly no sports, right? So little did I know, you know, I didn't really, I wasn't following hockey at the time. So one afternoon, I'm like... Having a couple drinks, and I go, "Um, I think I'm just gonna go downtown, you know, to get some drinks on one of the bars down there. So, driving down, and all of a sudden, I see this enormous crowd. Like, like, I'm like, what the fuck is going on? I see people drinking cans of beers and shit. I'm going. I'm going to pull the fuck over and see what's going on. So I pull the car over. This is before PPA, where you could actually park illegally and have peace of mind. You know, <laughs> so, you know, So I pull over. Completely illegal to join the party. I had no idea what it was. The Flyers had just won the fucking championship, right? So like. So I'm parked right near the fucking city hall. And I'm like, I'm asking people, what's going on? What happened? You know, the flyers. And I'm like, wow, well, you know, I don't know anything about the flyers, but I'm ready. I'm up for a party. I came down there and have a couple of drinks. Cetera, and uh, people are handing out beers and shit. So I'm like drinking and drinking and drinking, you know, and everybody's in a great mood. And I'm like, i almost like I'm having a party on my own without regards to ending the flyers. But then I see a couple of people up on top of buses, you know. So I'm like, and this is back when the bus windows would open, right? Just before this it's this like you know bullshit that goes on there. a the fucking thing's sealed you know <laughs> so <laughs> so i'm like going fuck i'm I was, i'm thinking like i was a basketball player once i'm probably superior athletically than any of the motherfuckers up there plus i you know like i'm thinking i'm going to climb up on the fucking bus and jump up get on top of the buses right so i'm climbing up this bus i get right on i don't know i finally i'm up you know someone's up there I pull me up so i'm up on top of the bus with a couple of people and everybody's on the bus and i'm going You know, fucking, I'm not going to just stay on this bus. I see other buses are coming by. Like, they're coming by. Everybody's, they're coming by at seven miles an hour. But I'm thinking, I'm going to fucking jump from this bus to the roof of that bus. Because what I learned in physics at Temple University is that if two objects are moving at the same velocity, nobody's moving at all. Because the sense of force and gravity are equal. This is what I'm imagining. Like, I'm (laughs) ripped out of my mind. So I'm fucking, I am, like, I was jumping, you know. From bus to bus, you know, and jumping back and forth, and, you know, everybody, yeah, you know, and then, like, you know. So then I got got to jump on the, it was like a third bus or something. I was like jumping around, like, kind of showing off. I went to jump back on the original bus, but that that bus had like a split second beforehand. It lurched forward so my bus was only going like five miles an hour and that one started going seven miles an hour and it doesn't sound like much of a difference but when you go to land and there's a two miles per hour difference in from where you jump from to where you land I slipped and went fucking down and landed right on my heel C- crushed my heel like really bad. So, uh, (laughs) the pain was unbelievable. (laughs) And then I I went to get up and you, you literally can't get up because I don't know if you know anything about this, but like when you're, when your heel breaks, it's all these tendons and shit from your toes are all connected. It it pull (laughs) you you go to the heels. Just, it's like a flapper and it's pulling your toes for it. It's a pain. It's unbelievable. So I had to walk back to the illegally parked car and drive home to where I lived. With a girl I had just broken up with, you can only even imagine what the temper was like in that in that building, right? So, like, I had to, I had to crawl back into my apartment. And
0: she wasn't even help for me, but, anyway,
1: but I mean, so that's how I broke my heel. I don't even know how I got into but that's, that's, that's it, you know. That
0: 1974. Was, I was 74, yeah. That that was was, and I didn't, story. and I
1: didn't, yeah. And then the next, I did, I, I, sl- I went to sleep. I continued drinking, figuring it's gonna go away. It was worse than <laughs> no one you know. And my buddy Bongo had to carry me like a sacrificial lamb to the Methodist hospital the next day. It was fucking nuts, you know. I always loved Bongo for that because my girlfriend wasn't helping out at all at the time. So um, yeah, that's the that's the broken hill story, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> By 74 and a half, uh, she and I break up, so I moved back into my mother's house. And then I'm still, what am I? Am I, I don't think I'm in college. No, I'm not in college. I'm still working, working for the government. Have, and, you
0: written any, have you written any songs yet?
1: Oh, yeah, I'm starting to write tunes. You know, a lot of stuff that you know didn't go anywhere, but I'm really got the bug, you know. But I'm not out playing just yet. So then, 74 and a half, right before, right around there, right around 74 and a half, all these things happen in my universe. It's like, um, Not only are songs beginning to come, but other people that are musicians are beginning to play with me and because uh, it's really hard to secure someone to play with you if they don't they, 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 there was a guy named franny welding he, he was playing he would play with me he was like the very first guy to take a chance to play with me he was around during sort of the the catacomb days you know he was getting used to being thrown out of places and like you know but he was really faithful. he was like really loyal great friend and loyal musician and like would put up with all nonsense that i was doing which i thought i was like breaking down i thought i was like doing something like historical at the time. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so anyway, I moved back to my mom's house and then, so I, somehow I, like start to, you know, jamming with other people. And then what happens? I'm trying to think, I start, start to put together what's known as the, the original secret kids. Franny Welding's in it, Artie Tripp the Thirds, I know I was telling you about Artie Tripp, and George George uh, Shirley, who I changed his name to George Napkin backstage before we opened up for Patty Smith. I was smoking pot at the time and because I was, you know, so because uh, he had napkins coming out of his pocket. Your name is George Napkin from now on. We had a keyboard player. I said, your name is Igloo Igloo, you know, he, he, <laughs> he couldn't take it. He quit. Igloo Igloo. I never saw him again. Uh, so, um, so that was pretty cool. So then we started doing like all these non, like these gigs. I had this, I bought this car, I had a car sign. I bought a car. I moved out of my mother's and moved in this place at 45th and Osage. I had this great car. It was a big car, and it was a really big Buick, a Deuce and a Quarter. They would refer, refer to it. And we started doing the, the postering camp. I had already done a postering campaign in 1970 on my own. You know, even though I was still not playing out. What did I, the what did the poster? Look the like? very first posters was just Ken Queer folk. And they were eight and a half by eleven. I designed those like in 1970, and then was later there, was on. Was there an image that went with that it? That came. What happened? They went up first. Then one day. I was, I started thinking about Leo like I gotta get a photo of Leo Arbyazzo. I wanna put him on, on a poster because I'm not really playing out, but the, my anger at the catacombs folks was like, I'm gonna fucking get back at these cocksuckers, right? So I'm gonna put up fucking thousands of posters with my name until they ask me to come back. You know, this was my, this was, they have no idea, they launched 10 cleaners, fuckers. So, so, uh, so, um, so anyway, like I'm in the library, foot of off the library and I see, a picture of Lee Harvey Oswald getting a famous photo of him getting shot. I go, this is the photograph I got to put on. First, they were 8 hit by 11, and I was gluing them up.
0: What do you think drew you to that photograph?
1: Oh, because when I, in 1963, when all that shit went down, I loved John F. Kennedy. And when he died, you know, I was so religious, I prayed all the time, he's going to come back to life. I, like really did. Every night, I prayed you got to come back to life you got to come back to life i thought he was gonna i thought if everybody prayed we'd get him back to life but obviously not but within a couple you know that this but that that was a really 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 serious part of my life and and then livery Hodswood gets get shot a couple of days after he shoots uh kennedy and i'm like that was it was it was unbelievable i mean like you know that that, that they see that shit on tv so like and then with the, the photographs are always in the news so I, that was that was like a remarkable photo that was with me forever and when i and then and I, to me like my life changed when kennedy got killed and like the, everything changed the tenor of people's lives changed and when oswald got killed it was like it was like good it was like this sense of like they, they say that the sense of revenge is stronger than love or whatever. I was hanging out with a psychiatrist once. I go, Love makes the world go around. He goes, No, man, you got it wrong. Revenge makes the world go around. So, like, uh, <laughs> by the way, I've been doing gigs for psychiatrists lately. It's been unbelievable. It's a true story. So, um, I think, like, the Philly cops are hiring me now, like, psychiatrists. Like, you have no idea. My life has unfolded like, like a tree. It's out of control. <laughs> so, um, so, anyway, uh, what was I talking about? So, anyway, like, years later, uh, you know, 1970 ish, 71 mm-hmm. i see the um the picture of Lee i so uh you know in the old days you could take the picture out you could take and then bring it back so i went to um you know i, I you know I, I i took the artwork that i had made i'm really not an artist ken queter folk at the top it just said ken quitter folk To get back at catacombs right and then at the bottom lee Harvey because it was like a sense a scene of violence which i knew would be outrageous but at the same time it was still in people's psyche strongly at that time so what i did is i strategically thought um I know that this is shocking and this is pre 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 tabloidal we live in a very tabloidal age now where that one even nobody would even notice back in those days you know there wasn't anything like that you might you'd see things like um you know like SDS and you know I was like you know i mean i lived the you know i was pretty much i felt like a bit of a revolutionary countercultural guy so i watched what those guys were doing there was the angela davis back then and i would see her posters see see, my whole poster thing was rooted in um looking at angela davis and sds posters going up and also every day when i was going to college in the early like very early 70s 70s 70s, my trolley that brought me into town to get the, the the broad street l or whatever the underground I would always stop at all these stops at like 36th Street or 33rd or 30th. And there was always this graffiti, Chewy, Cornbread.
0: Cornbread, uh, famous graffiti artist, yeah.
1: You know, those guys have meetings all the time. They do have, you know, he is accessible. So I used to look at these guys and a lot of times you couldn't, there was a guy named Ty Ty and there was guys you couldn't really read what they were doing. So I thought like, fuck that. It's great. I know who Chewy is. I knew who cornbread is and i'd heard the legend that chewy or cornbread ran out on the tarp uh, the airplane tarp whatever they call it and they actually wrote the cornbread underneath the airplane the truth <laughs> you know i think it's a true story i was going like i'm going to outdo these guys and i'm going to uh, uh borrow from angela davis and the sds and all these other cats uh, the postering thing but at the same time being as outrageous as chewy and cornbread together be a synthesis but the trick I really learned was from Angela Davis followers. I saw them putting. Them, I go, what are you using to put these things up? They don't seem to come down. And they go, carnation milk. And I said, because I was using like wallpaper paste, which was good, but the carnation milk way stronger. So, anyway, so I get the carnation, I, I buy the carnation milk, I get the Lee Harvey, Lee Harvey Oswald photograph attached to the Ken Queter folk at the top, and I start putting these fuckers up everywhere, pretty much by myself, you know. And um, and um, so I do that, and then like you know, but then this is the early '70s. Then you understand. And then the, the thing happens with the catacombs, and then I retire. Uh, you know, back in you know uh, '74 and a half, like June of 1974, right? So um, so at that point, then all of a sudden, the idea of, of I'm going to do a band, the Secret Kids. So and also you have to understand. At the same time, I'm working for the government, and I'm at this point they put me in head of food stamps. I'm in, I'm like fucking head of the food stamps. So I'm giving people food stamps, right? I'm like giving people who are going to become doctors and dentists and people living in very difficult areas. They call me Mr. Keters, Is Mr. Keters, because they knew I like, I like I was looking out, like trying to help people out. So, but at the same time, like. I'm starting to get fed up with, like, I'm going, like, I, like all of a sudden, the band that I'm putting together is starting to sound good. I'm going, I got to get out of here, you know? So uh, Nixon had resigned on August 9th, 1974. So it was around uh, July of 75 when I said, fuck this. I'm going to resign on the anniversary of Nixon, August 9th, 1975. <laughs> so August 8th, I wrote out, I was at rehearsal with the Secret Kids in West Philly and I wrote out my resignation thing. I actually quoted Nixon and all this shit. It's in, it's in the files editor. So I got out, but at the same time, all, while this is all going on, I'm in charge of food stamps, I'm like thinking, as soon as I get out here, I'm applying for food stamps, I'm gonna buy fucking cases and cases and cases and cases of carnation milk and I'm going to deface Philadelphia with government money, you know, because I'm a sick motherfucker, you know, because I'm thinking, because <laughs> i am still got this edge in me, like, I'm just going to have a lot of fun with this. So, so like, you know, so I go and I, you know, because I, you know, it, it was legal, You go and then you go. On. So I just started getting food stamps and buying all kinds of carnation milk. So in my car, the Deuce and a quarter, the Buick, had really big back seats. We just, me and Artie Tripp, the third, Franny Welding, Red Barker, all these guys, like, didn't have any. What are you doing on Friday? I don't know. I'm not doing anything. Let's go take a ride with me. We're driving. We're going on bridges. We're putting this shit up. City Hall. We're hitting abandoned buildings. Cars are abandoned. You're like And then we start to get into, like, really beautiful stores downtown, like like a clothing store, like men's warehouse. We're doing their fucking windows. Like, we're, do- we're like, doing things really good in people's eyes. And then we start to do all the... Um, all the subways because i'm going chewy and cornbread chewing cornbread and i'm going like i'm going to hit 36th street 30th and we're going to put up a hundred of each one of these spots or 50 or something so every time people come in whether they're coming to school coming in and out you're talking about tens of thousands of people every day taking a, a trolley or whatever and then we hit 69th street and if they took them down we were back a month later they took them out we we're back you know so the ship, you know, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds, thousands and thousands. And then I came up with this idea, fuck it. When's rush hour? Rush hour is like such and such times. So I go, I got a really good idea. Let's do some movable fucking uh, posters. So me and Artie Chipper, whoever was going to meet me, we would stand at 30th Street Station, right? Wherever we were. And the trial was. I knew, I knew the schedule. They were coming, they were coming in one every two minutes. So we would just be standing there. We knew where they were going to stop and where people, you know, we were at the back, right at the, so we would put two, po- like one of us did the brush and the other one put the poster on, and then the guy with the brush sealed it tight. So then when people <laughs> were driving out Philly, Ken Quinter posters were on the back of every trolley and then we started hitting buses. So we did all, this was like nonstop, like, like deranged, but super like behavior. And, you know, like to do this, because I was like, Ken Queter, like, gotta get the word out. Even though I'm not, like, really playing, you know? There's, <laughs> like, no gigs. There's no like, nothing. There's nothing on the, you know, then the, the, we, the, we got, like, this thing that we're on. Ken Queter on tour, and it's, like, a trigger, trigonometric um, design. On tour where? Who is it? Why? People thought it was affiliated with the Kennedy people. They didn't know what was going on. So this shit went on for a long time, like, a year and a half. Maybe a straight year or something. When our first gig was, like, um, 1975 at, a What's called local 44, 44th and Spruce it was called Murphy's Tavern. Mm-hmm. So when we finally played and we put posters up, it was a jam, mob, fucking scene. By that time, I had a you know bunch of tunes and I was integrating other people's music in there. And at the same time, even while all that shit's going on. Like, somewhere in between that, I'm, like, the call, the go-to guy for Tom Waits to drive him around because he was starting off his career while I'm doing all this other crazy shit. So I got the phone call because I was I had met Bill Ibe, and Bill Ibe was booking colleges, and Tom Waits was just starting off. So they go, who do you, do you know a guy, anybody would drive Tom around when he's in, like, the Philadelphia I get cleaner, right? So, like, I'm driving Tom Waits around, like, you know, I did, like, 15... Technically, fifteen Tom Waits drives. Right, wow. In about a, a year, two months time, the last two were really Tom driving me because I was so fucked up. Uh, I was in the back seat, and then he would like he let me. I thought it was funny, but Tom didn't. You know, and um, so. <laughs>
0: so that's what, what, what was Tom like?
1: Well, the first thing I said to Tom when I picked him up the very first time when I picked mm-hmm. him up. And when I was, I, I drove him to the Bellevue-Stratford, which is on Broad Street. And I was I picked him up the 30th Street station and I let him you know, I you know, I didn't know who he was. I had no idea, I heard the name, you know. And he looked like, we were about the same age. I think he's like two years older than me. And he looked gruff, you know, uh, but really kind of a cool guy. But I was a little nervous because obviously he had he was on the radio, you know. So I remember clearly Opening my trunk because he had put his bag to And I go, Listen, let me tell I, I said to him, this is, for, for, I said, Let me tell you, I said, Look, Tom, if you need anything, you know, like, if you need like any kind of substances, I'm the guy, right? <laughs>
2: right? And he goes, no, I'm not really in that.
1: I got to I go, know, I go, man. You can, I said, you can trust me, right? Yeah. He doesn't even know me, right? <laughs> <laughs> you can trust me, like it's like setting Tom up for the cops and Philly, right? <laughs> so. Uh, so he goes, no, man, I'm serious, man. I'm I'm cool, you know. So said so I, go, I, go, I just wanted to let you know, it's cool, man. Just in case, cause you look like the kind of guy gets <laughs> off. Yeah. So anyway, so that's like, my first introduction. So so then I think um, the next day I had to drive in like Glassboro, it was Glassboro, Glassboro, College. Yeah. yeah. I did a gig, did a couple gigs there. Then we did some you know, New York. I stayed at the Chelsea Hotel with them, Main Point, stayed with Martin Mall, you know. But the main, as, as time's going on, it's like, in the beginning, I'm like really studious, and you know, and I got Artie Chips kind of coming with me too. cause. But then like midway through, like we're going up to New York and I'm kind of getting screwed up, and, and Artie uh, like drive back, or you know, like me and Artie were like a double team of driving or whatever, you know, but towards the end, I kind of got sloppy. You know it was all cool I mean Tom was like because I used to say like we would go to diners together all the time and um, Tom would say uh you know he always had a can of beer with him you know he loved diners he really liked diners you know and he and I'll tell you one thing about him no matter what they said about him like this whole drinking thing or whatever like I can remember waking up in the Chelsea Hotel like he gave I had a room he had a room everybody had rooms uh, and or if we were out in Radnor we stayed at um, the Radnor Hotel or something. I remember, I remember that. But I remember I would wake up and then I would knock on his door, you know. And his hair would be all the way up. And he was, he would, Tom Waits is a serious workaholic. He'd be up all night working on his riffing. He, like, like in other words, like, I didn't really see Tom ever out of control. I mean, he might have a couple beers, but he was really, I'm sure he still is, like, you know, you wouldn't think of a guy like that, but really, like, oh, unbelievable workaholic because 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 he would I don't know if he'd stay up all night or what it was but he was always awake when I went over there you know so you know, you know but anyway I got fired and then uh, um, you know uh, he didn't I don't think he thought it was funny because years went by and uh, he was playing the Academy of music it was like 1983 and I brought this girl to the Academy to see Tom Waits right so I thought oh man this is a great opportunity to impress this girl cuz and I went to hook up with her later on. It was our first date. I go, oh, we'll get back. We'll get backstage, right? We'll get backstage, right? So, uh, so, uh, uh, so after the show, I go to the side of the building. You know, you knock on the door, and I don't know what you call the alcove or something and then this door opens it's just like a scene out of The Wizard of Oz like, like the door, <laughs> hello can I help you i mean, the guys with the hat on I don't know, that's the what, I don't know where they're at the castle or something yeah yeah they're uh,
0: going to see The Wizard and there's, yeah. a, there's a big door in the beginning it's big yeah. door so it's just
1: like that right it's just like this, this, there's like a door in this alcove section of the kind of music the door opens and, and uh, this woman goes can I help you and I go yeah I'm here to see Tom Waits, like the same. i know known him for years I used to drive him around right? <laughs> so, so she, goes, she goes what's your name I said Ken Queter right she goes alright so um, she, goes, what is I said, Ken, she goes, I said, Ken, quit her. She goes, I quit her, right? I go, yeah. Right. So it closes the door, right? So like one minute goes by, two minutes, and I'm thinking like, this is gonna, we're gonna go backstage with this chick. And uh, so then like, uh, so then five minutes go by, I'm like, what happened, you know? It's so, like, knock on the door again. It's the same scene, Like it's like I, Wizard of Oz. Yeah, can I help you? And I go, well, I was just, you know. She goes, what's your, she goes, do me a favor can you repeat your name really clearly one more time? Right. I okay, go, yeah, Ken Queter, formerly driver of Tom. I, I, we're friends, right? And a couple of drinks, right? <laughs> so she, she closes the door a little bit, she comes back 45 seconds later. She goes, your name's Ken Queter, right? Okay, go, yeah. She goes, in that case, you're absolutely not permitted back here <laughs> and like, I went from being like seven foot tall like an inch in front of the, the eyes of this girl my date that night yeah so that, that was it you know so so Tom had some memories he Had some memory <laughs> so I don't know what happened but that's a true story I still love him I love the guy he's great You know.
3: Daylight was wearing thin just around the bend And a ragamuffin suitcase was in my hand And tape and names and pictures were on its sides Remnants of so many freight train rides Oh, the tempting devils of the roads are near. And they lord me to a pass just away from here. Well, I hope, oh, It don't seem more than but a year ago When she spied me losing ground to the lethal cold Well I was just a shadow barely thin. When she saved me from myself To the time I found myself upon her bed Well, I knew that fair thee well was on its way No matter what our minds, our hearts could say this feeling it's just that strong It makes something seem so right I know they're wrong So I guess there's nothing left for me to say But that me and tomorrow
1: but yeah. I to But that all well, that should happen like in 74 75 76 you know but that's when the secret Kids got launched you know like,
0: what, what was that early repertoire of so- repertoire of songs what songs were you doing uh?
1: Uh, mama I gotta leave I, I, I don't really I don't um, really play it anymore um, Uh... So closer, says, closer to you. Another terrible. Like, like, Mom, I got the ones in bed. There was a lot of terrible songs like uh, "Closer to You," um, oh uh, "Jungle Larry," you know, uh, which was, was like a real sing along. Uh, but I don't do it anymore. Um, and then Cassidy's Bible I had written way back then, but no, you know. But we did like electric
0: version of that. Yeah, How about uh, Susie. Susie says so. Susie so said it
1: came. That came in seventy-seven. Was
0: seventy-seven. What was the band like? What, what what sort of impression did they make on stage?
1: Once again, it was certainly not conventional. It was like you had George, Napkin, who just stood and put his finger in his ear and sang all the high notes. Artie Chip was the bass player, and Franny Wadding was the guitar player, and I was a guitar player. So it was basically acoustic, but it was if you can imagine, if like John, Jonathan Richmond took a detour, I mean. It was kind of like Jonathan Richmond, like, not, we didn't even know of each other, but it was kind of acoustic, but it was left of what people were listening to at the time. And the it, it was, it had a certain, like, built in sense of humor, but really serious at the same time, you know, um, and ragged, you know, pretty ragged. But not, in, it wasn't like, you know, when people talk about garage bands and they, they have an intent to put together a garage band. My intent was never to, to sound like I sound. I was like, my intent was to get out of the garage, but. Um, but it would garage bandy sounding if you, if you were to, that's pe- people love that. I mean, they did like that. Somebody moved, there, there were, there guys who'd filmed me back then who ended up getting, what do you call it? Like a, what's that thing? You get a uh, scholarship. A scholarship. And I wish I saw that movie. I mean, there, there was, there was movies of Queeter and the original secret kids at the, ta- at the old tavern. I would love to see that because I saw the guy years later. He goes, Dude, I got to thank you. I go, Why? He goes, I went through like years of film school and because of this goofy film I made a you. I was like, You know, so I never, you know, I don't know where that film's at, where he's at. He's still alive. But, you know, and then like, you know, the, then we did like a lot, a lot of covers. We did like Bob Dylan, like We did shit like, uh, what's that Bowie song? Uh, uh, all the Young Dudes, you know, and uh, stuff like that. We did. Uh,
0: How'd you go over with audiences?
1: Uh, it was okay. I mean, I mean the tavern thing was cool but we had to do a lot of commercial stuff there but like then we did like community college we did all these different colleges we came and we never got paid we did we did like drug rehab houses togetherness house out in the burbs and there were we never had a big following in that the the, the original kids but there was people that liked what we did you know i really loved what we did you know i was like wow this is great even if we had like four people there was one guy was in a mental institution his whole his name was benny and he got my address and he used to he had analyzed all my songs i was doing and to write me letters after letters. and this guy knew everything like i was on like i was 24 then or 20 24 and a half and this guy was like you know like he was such a sweetheart i don't know what he did but he he would get it he would get out of the institution and he'd find out where i was you know and he would follow but like it was like really like it was like a, kind of like a devout Follower of mine, one of the first ones, you know, <laughs> and um, I don't think disappeared, but but th- th- we had some really uh, devout followers, not many, but but then that band there was a little bit of a thing happened between me and one of the guys, and then it fell apart for a while. Then I reassembled uh, the the next generation, which was the one that everybody knows, the the big powerhouse one. It was like uh,
0: who was in that band?
1: That would be um, Chris Larkin, Alan James, Denny Sheridan uh Johnny Sachs, Hank Ransom and myself.
0: Hank Ransom.
1: Hank Ransom yeah, was in there, yeah. 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 Wait, there was the, the, the original Secret Kids, which we had no drummer, then we had a then we had a drummer. Mm-hmm. And then we added Chris Larkin. That band took off. That's when it took off, that that band there. We were still real ragged, but we were selling out the main point and it was shit. My audience was really wild. They were like taking the chairs out of the out of the main point and throwing them on the Lancaster Avenue. I thought it was no big deal. I didn't realize there was a difference between mindsets from like inside Philly to the main line. No wonder <laughs> I wasn't allowed back in the main point for a pretty long time, because my crowd was wild, you know. Uh, there was a
0: lot of local bands that played the main point Everybody too, played it. Kind of, was it? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, uh, you know, but it was mostly folk acts. I was one of the very first rock acts to play there. I think I put the kibosh on the number that came in later. But the thing is, is that uh, with, when, when we added Chris Larkin and, and um, guy named Jim Anderson and Dr. Bugaboo, all these guys, that band, that band, then Bill Ibe came on board. He started booking us, mm-hmm. and that happened with, with, during the same period when people started talking about something called punk. Punk was around, then, you know, and um, I didn't really know what punk was. I had no, I mean, I really because I wasn't. To me, I was just so myopic on what I was doing, and so that band really, you know, started doing like. The, Places in town that no one would ever hire a local band to do, like the Bijou and, you know, Grand, they would take chances, but like I had a heavy drinking file, like a lot of people from Southwest Philly, wherever, and um, we were breaking, smashing all the records of any alcohol sales at all these places. So all of a sudden the Ken Quinter and Secret Kids were playing pretty busy like we didn't play nowhere near what i play now but we we would play once a month or twice a month which was enormous and play places and do mostly our own songs and then we were bringing in big crowds
0: well, so, why, why do you think you has such a drinking audience
1: well i would um well i come from you know an area where people do a lot of drinking I, at that point i was starting to go in high gear drinking too so people somehow felt
0: did you drink on stage and everything oh
1: god yeah i was drinking before i went on stage but I mean, you know uh, there's a lot of gigs that happen in, I mean, I could throughout my career. I don't remember like the last forty-five minutes. I remember I was I did a gig with the, the Secret Kids, um, like the the next third generation with Hank Ransom and those guys, and I can remember, you know, I was, it was in you know 1977 or whatever, and I had fallen asleep like leaning against the bass player. You know, and they like wake me up, and i will be in the middle of a guitar solo, you know? It's like, Quitter, get your parts coming up, you know? And like, it, it may, to me, it wasn't anything out of the ordinary, because that would happen, shit like that would happen all the time, you know? Uh, you know, Because I was like so young, I could still, I, my timing was Im- like impeccable, even if I was blacked out, you know? Uh, I lost that skill about nine years ago, but I mean, it went on for a long time, you know? Uh, that is a skill, by the way. I mean, you know, if you can black out and keep your timing, and that's pretty good and i had I had that for decades but but my crowd was watching it, and they were like drinking along with me
0: club owners love a cl- crowd that drinks
1: oh totally i didn't even care we weren't even getting paid like in other words we got paid but it didn't matter i was getting my point across i was doing the ken quitter thing you know it was really important to me it, re- it wasn't to me it was like the payoff's gonna happen a couple years down the line it's gonna be then i'll make the money i don't care but we did that for a while and then people in the band started caring <laughs> and um <laughs> You know, because I don't mind. You know, I'm waking up in a place with no water. I got buckets of water. That's fine. You know, but people like, a couple of guys like, going, you know, it's kind of, it's like on Uncle Meat, when Frank Zappa's guy say, and I couldn't believe this, Frank, this band's fucking starving. That's like a quote off. And like, we were too, but I wasn't letting it get to me. You know, I was like, you know, I can get food somewhere or whatever. Uh, and I, I still had the food stamps going, so I was getting the food. But a couple of guys, it was getting kind of weird. So by 1978, the crack story. We were supposed to get these record deals. They didn't happen, and uh, by '79 it was really sl- uh, slow. There's nothing worse than a slow nosedive, uh, and, and that was what was going on. As- what,
0: what was going on with the record deal? I mean, that was it's. It's funny today. I mean, the record company's in such a state of collapse. I don't. I don't even know what a record deal means for anybody anymore. Yeah. But at the time, that was really. Oh God, was- the the Ticket to Be Bowie.
1: That was, yeah, That they, they, they were given, and once again, I wasn't intoxicated by the money. I was only intoxicated by the fact that I was actually going to be able to articulate, manifest my vision on vinyl, and people were going to like, wow, this guy's great. Uh, and I wanted to inspire people to play music. I mean, my, whole, my 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 goals were really noble. You know, like I want people to play music. I want to like turn people into something really twisted about the world. Make people laugh. Make people cry. It was kind of like once again an extension of my mother. You know, she was like really in the very Judy Garland-ish. You know, and, like you know, life and death, slit the throat, almost die, come back. You know, that was my whole thing. Like blackout. You know, fall asleep under a truck and you know, whatever. Like Chris Lark and all this shit. So anyway, so. So we got like there was interest, you know. Clive Davis came in town with a fleet of people, and Clive that,
0: Davis, famous for being uh, the head of Arista. Yeah, Clive think, Davis you know. was like
1: a pretty big, pretty large name in terms of star maker, you know. And um, we didn't really hit it off, you know, because he wanted me to, um, and he wasn't like, I mean, he was he, he, he thought I was one of the like I mean he he was kind, very kind guy, uh, and he was he was he he, he thought my my presence on stage was like he was supreme i was like back in those days i mean he said he said like he, he goes i can't imagine by doing what you do better than you and he started naming you know bowie rod stewart all these guys jagger and i'm going yeah i know I fit that set. but he goes, he goes he goes i have a bone to pick with it and i go what is it and he goes like the you know like your songs they're great you know like on a local level and shit. He goes, but like, you're going to, conf- this is where that thing happens. You're going to confuse somebody in Iowa. And then you're going to conf- give like, he goes, it, you got to like, like reduce the number of words and all this. And, um, you know, to uh, make it simpler. And, and if you can, you know, because I was in a weird place because I wasn't punk rock. I wasn't exactly pop music. I was in the middle. So he was trying to get me to go go towards Barry, he kept bringing up Barry Manilow, like, who I wanted to, I wanted to kill, I wanted to kill, Barry. like if Barry Manilow came on the radio when I was driving in my car, my, in, I would injure my hand hitting the radio, I was like, because it was like, that's what I don't want to become, you know, but he's like, on yeah, if you would follow the Barry Manilow, like, you know, and I'm like, you know, i like, gosh, <laughs> so it didn't really work out, like, I just put it that way, um, and, and what, there was contact that was made for a while afterwards, but um, but, it definitely did not work out so and then um then there were other record labels There was um Elektra asylum uh and but that happened a little later after that and there was a couple other things and by that time i had different management i had management that trickled down from i had a guy named andy cavalieri who had worked with grand funk railroad and abe hawk who worked with zeppelin for a period so i had like zeppelin and and uh Grand Funk guy, and they're like, their mindset was totally different than my, like, like, they were digging what I was doing, but they're going, you got, to, they started doing the Barry Manilow thing, you know, so, and then they gave me like, they, it was like a time sentence yeah. thing. You get your shit together in twelve months, or else, you know, uh, and, and in the meantime, i had already, I had signed my life away to some other manager before they came on the picture. Then they, there was this big lawsuit going on, and it, it was all this shit going on that nobody knows about, and I was, in fact, I was living at Eighth and Fitzwood with a girl down there. When uh, I had to try, I tried to get somebody disbarred it was because I was like, you know, that was 1980, like 8081. And like, already the nosedive had like, by 1980. I it was, it was like, the secret kid thing was like, gone. And then all of a sudden, I was like, um, in free fall. There was also
0: an industry recession around that time too. That happened too, yeah. Post disco, I know. There's an industry recession, yeah. and uh, the record company sort of pulled back on the number of groups they were supporting yeah. and all that thing. It's,
1: this is something I didn't know because I, I was so myopic. I didn't know about like this, and I, I was going. But sometimes I go back. Oh, I didn't know there was like a housing recession, and then I like I didn't start realizing that shit like like about twelve years ago. So I remember I auditioned for a guy named Ron Alexander. Ron. I don't know if he was a lecturer or he had his own it was a label i went down there and i played in his office he was the president and that was like 80 or 81 and and um in fact i didn't get the you know like like i was totally intimidated it was like this really sterile office and like i'm playing that a president me and Nick, And then abe hawk's going like give him this look on give him that one kid give him that one kid like (laughs) give him that one like i'm like and it was just really weird and then and then i you know and then i left and then like Ron goes, I'll let you know, like, next week. Or otherwise, I go to get on the elevator. And Peter Grant from Led Zeppelin, I get on an elevator. and you're like, I don't even know anything about Led Zeppelin. I kind of didn't like him. There. So, but I find out, you're, like, I'm like, oh, that's Peter Grant. Like, 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 no big deal. But I realized, like he was like a legendary figure, you know. But all these weird things had happened to me, you know. So then, like, um, by 82 or 83, it's like, secret kids are gone, you know. And then uh, I put together, like, briefly, the Ken Queter and the men from Queter. Which was like superstars, you know, I like one or two guys from the Secret Kids, and I cherry-picked other guys, and that went pretty good. It was pretty cool. We did like Ripley. We did all these gigs. Seventy-nine and 70, and seventy-nine and eighty-three were like two of the worst years of my life. And um,
0: why were they so bad?
1: Because like I had burned like like eighty-eight. I mean seventy-eight was. I was so outrageous, and I turned off so many club owners. It was almost like an extrapolation of what I'd done to the Copa to the to the catacomb gang. It's like <laughs> I, I totally alienate the folk guys who I really wanted to be part of. And then I totally alienate every club owner in Philly for things I did. I you know, I was outrageously obvious about my drug use and the drunk like the, the escapades that I would find out about, you know, just doing like things, you know.
0: Um, Were you like in a self-destructive place? I didn't like think I was self-destructive or? at all.
1: No, It no. was self-destructive. But to me, it was like, it was all theater. To me, it was like, you know, I'm going to bring some fire. I'm bringing in fucking firecrackers. I'm bringing in smoke bombs, you know. And like this guy, Phil Socola was still around, the photographer. Mm-hmm. He was outrageous photographer. And um, he and I, like, we'd fallen in and out, like, you know. But he would come see me and he would bring like, literally like, like, like smoke bombs. Like, we'd be playing in a place somewhere. And... All this, he would he would dress up as a priest and put the smoke bombs at the very end where you can't get out, and then the bomb would go off, and everybody's choking like at my show, right? And then like trying to get out, and like and like he's in the priest outfit blocking the door. And I mean this <laughs> this shit would go on, man. Like and um, you know, but we were doing all these gigs, and then. Um, uh, you know and then the word was like Queeter's trouble you know if you're like like okay i know he sells booze but like there's things going on here and they're like you know i never never i never never not showed up for a gig i always showed up mm-hmm. but the shit that went down was like you know i can remember you know we did things that were out believe like me and we were doing the tom and jim show was going on because the band was gone so mm-hmm. we would be going to tom like, and jim
0: was you and chris, me and chris
1: larkin but we were like we didn't give up we were like Girls would show up with pills. We would take pills at the beginning of the night.
0: What we're the Tom and Jim show. It's just, uh, let's rewind and talk about Tom and Jim because that was a very specific uh, yeah. time in your career. Yeah,
1: Tom and Jim was like the alternate ego of the Ken Quitter and the Secret Kids. It was like it was two guys who were really talented who were kind of goofing off on everything, kind of like the Flight of the Concords a little bit, but that's more cleaned up. This is like pre Flight of the Conchords. We got two really talented guys who are goofing off on on you know uh, their own music and other things and, and getting really high at the same time. So we would go into places and it would start off relatively okay. But people, after a while, realized that Tom and Jim had nothing to do with essentially performance. But all, everybody drinking as one organism or, and, and getting high as one organism it was like, like G-H-A-O, getting high as one or D-A-O, D-A-O, Dao, right? It's kind of like Taoism, because i'm thinking fucked up so this shit went on for years so we were doing gigs and like people were showing up with all kinds of drugs and there were, there's like nights i mean i would find out what happened like we would be doing like a song and then like Chris, we, he was a keyboard player but then i would go on keyboards he would play the guitar and then like i would get so high i would like fall asleep like, on the keyboards, my nose on, like, a C-sharp, and it would be, like, this sustained C-sharp, ah, like, for, like, Chris wouldn't even turn it off, so all you would hear is, like, ah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, this, and, and, like, and then one time, we did this gig at Who's on Third, like, uh, 1985, this is, uh, it's still got, like, the Tom and Jim thing happened several times here, and people would just come, they'd get fucked up, and, you know, so one day, we could, do the, uh, we do the, the, the Who's on 3rd down here, 3rd in Bainbridge. And on the way down, I saw a big truck tire, right? Like, I'll bring the fucking tire down to the gig. We're going to put this in the act. I had bought like 50 packs of firecrackers. I want to bring the firecrackers. I'm not even thinking this shit's weird, right? So they put us up on a, like the place does dinner too, right? They're doing dinner, right? So Tom and Jim are up on like, a, like the dinner crowd is like down there and there's like, Couple steps and a couple more steps, and we're up on like this sort of a stage area, which would be like a DJ area, but it's pretty big. So we're up there playing and shit, and then like, and I got the tire, and we're doing you know. We're doing. We start doing like there's a Polish thing called roll out the tire. And Chris Larkin, Chris Larkin knew every song, and he's got like he's got like drum machine going. It's like it's like like roll out the tire, roll out the tire. So we're doing like roll out the tire, and we're both high. As a so I take all the, I take like five packs of firecrackers and I hold them. I say like, hold on everybody. So Chris lights them up right, throw them into the fucking side, the inside of this big tire, and then like. Chris goes back onto, he's back on the keyboard. It sounds like a carnival sound. (laughs) And then we're yelling, roll out the tire, roll out the tire, right? And we're rolling this fucking thing right from the stage here and it's going down and down the steps and the firecrackers start going off and they're crashing. This tire must weigh 70 pounds and it's crashing. It's going like the dining room crashing the
2: tables and shit. you know.
0: That's it for this episode of Fun to Know. Come back next week for part two where Queeter's story deepens and our wide-ranging conversation includes what is up with today's music, the sandwich trick, and modern youth. Reach us at Fun to Know Podcast at gmail, that's the numeral two, and the Fun to Know Podcast page at Facebook. Stream and download old episodes at soundcloud.com backslash fun to know. Check out my film writing at Falker.com, that's P-H-A-W-K-E-R. Check out Jazz with Dan Buskirk Mondays at 11 a.m. on WPRB Princeton. And come back for more of the Fun to Know podcast.
2: We're free, I tell you. So wake up. It's time.